My name is Tim Krell, and this morning our scripture reading is from the book of James. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading from James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27 from the English Standard Version. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The word of the Lord. Good morning. <laughs> My name is Peter, I am one of the pastors here, and we are continuing in our series this morning, the series called Proof of Life. We're looking at the book of James. Today I wanna think about the question, is there really a difference between a Christian and someone who is not? This is the question that's underlying the passage that uh, James uh, has written for us today. I want to break down that question into four sub-questions to help activate our minds. Okay, here's sub-question number one. If you are not a Christian and you're contemplating becoming one, what change are you expecting? Oh, it's working. Beautiful. All right. If you are not a Christian, why are you contemplating becoming one? What's the deficit in your life as you know it? And what do you hope to gain by becoming a Christian? What do you get if you sign on the dotted line and give your soul away? Sub-question number two. If you're hoping somebody becomes a Christian, a friend, a coworker, a family member, a neighbor, what's the change you're hoping to see in that person? What causes you to have hope that somebody will become a Christian why? Third sub-question. If you've been a Christian and you're a bit disillusioned or cynical about the whole thing, what change have you not been able to observe in yourself or others that's causing you to feel that way? Why are you thinking about giving up on the whole Christian thing? In what ways has it been ineffective or not real, or not helpful. Finally, if you've been a Christian and you plan to stay one for a while, 
What are you seeing and holding on to? What's your evidence? What's your hope? Why do you want to stay a Christian? It's certainly not Christians. You look at Christians and you realize there's got to be more to this faith than Christians. That can't be the end product. Why? What's your hope? Why are you joining that mass of hypocritical so-called believers? These questions got me thinking about my own conversion experiences. Uh, I counted, and basically I became a Christian four times, and then a fifth time. The first time I remember is when I was a little kid, maybe four or five years old, and my Sunday school teacher put his hand on my freshly bloodied knee, and he prayed for me. I don't remember what he prayed, but I remember just being just overwhelmed with the love of this person who was willing to touch my wound. He probably shouldn't have done that. (laughs) But he did. And I remember a spiritual thing happening when he prayed for me. It's like he prayed for healing and I believed it. It's like there was some divine presence and I felt it. I don't know. That's my memory of it. The second memory I have is when I was a middle school student, I went on a retreat. And I remember after a speaker, we went outside, and I grew up in New York City. We were in Pennsylvania. I looked up, and I saw stars, maybe for the first time in my life. I don't know. And it was beautiful, and I felt awe, and I felt the smallness of my self and existence. And that's the next sort of spiritual conversion-type experience I remember. And then a third time was when I was at a retreat in high school. And this is the first time I learned about the fear of God, that I really deserve punishment. I felt I understood that I have failed in life and that I will continue to because it's not so much what I do, but it's who I am. And I needed help with who I was. That was high school. And then the fourth time was as a junior in college. I was coming to grips with all my issues of family of origin issues and the trauma I experienced as an immigrant and all these other sort of uh, experiences that had caused issues in me. I was confronted with what those issues were. I had names for them. And I really, really wanted to be, quote, unquote, saved. Saved. I needed salvation. And then after that, it's kind of like every year I'm getting saved. That's my fifth time. It's just sort of... Not a reconversion, but a kind of uh, uh, like an aha moment or a click that happens. And I go, oh my goodness, how did I, what did I even believe before? And things really begin to make sense in a fresh new way. And there's been seasons when it's been three steps forward and two steps back. But mostly, the curve goes upwards. I've become a Christian and I've stayed a Christian and I've grown stronger as a Christian. What's your story like? Why are you a Christian today if you are one? If you're not a Christian, why are you here at church? What are you looking for? What are you hoping to see? That's the question we need to address today. The main point of today's sermon is that Christianity is primarily and I would say fundamentally an inside-out religion and not an outside-in religion. Christianity at its heart is about 
the changing of the heart. You observe somebody's behavior or personality or quirk on the outside, and you trace that back down to one level. And then you go deeper and deeper and deeper until you can't get to any more whys. You're in contact with the fundamental reason why somebody is or does anything. And that's what the Bible calls the heart or the soul. And the message of Christianity is Jesus came to die for the sins of humanity, not just the acts, but the sinful heart from where sin comes. Christianity is not about modifying outside externalities like behavior or even, James goes here, your belief system. Just because you believe something and know it to be true doesn't mean necessarily that your heart has been changed. And the primary example that James gives of this are demons. That's later on. We'll talk about that. You can know things. You can believe things. You can behave in just the right way and still be not saved at your heart level. That's what James is trying to get at today. Human nature, as we understand it, is to focus on the outward appearance of things. We tend to be outside in. That's human nature. But God, unlike us, always, always, the angle through which he views us, you and me, is always at the heart. So a couple of examples of this. There's lots of examples of this throughout the Bible. First uh, Samuel 16 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't be impressed by his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. God does not view things the way men do. People look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Second Chronicles, for the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. What do you feel? What changes in your mind when I remind you that God looks at the heart? What I feel is I have less control. I can't fake it till I make it. I can't pretend. I can't sort of set it and forget it. It's not like I prayed once and now I'm just a Christian. It's not that I'm controlling my behavior or my words even, and now I look like a Christian, I sound like a Christian. It doesn't mean I must be a Christian. And that's a little bit frightening to me. I have to pause and ask, well, what does God see? What's happening in my heart? Who am I really? What would I think of me? What category do I fall into if I were to see myself through God's eyes? And when I think about that, I realize that all my righteousness, all my so-called righteousness, my works, my good deeds, my good thoughts, my good habits, all of that doesn't mount to anything. It doesn't add up to what 
is going to matter or count when God looks at me because he's not looking at those things. He's looking at the heart. And the heart, the Bible says, is above all else, it's deceitful, it's self-deceived. It's impaired, fundamentally unable to assess itself. And if I can't assess my own heart, I certainly don't have the qualifications to assess yours. Then how do we know what's happening in our hearts? We ask God what's happening. And that's what James is getting at. That God cares about the heart. And he's always looking at the heart. And if we want to, we can know what's happening in our hearts by reading God's word. It's God's word that acts as a mirror to show us what's happening in our hearts. These verses, I'm not going to read it for us again, 19 to 26. I'm going to leave it up there, uh, a sort of um, background image here. But it's really easy to read this, these verses. And if you're not careful, because of your nature, your reflex, your tendency to focus on the outward appearance of things, you immediately think about behavior and choices and lifestyle, goodness, morality, habits, how one appears. And you will tend to see outer things as defining a person rather than as manifestations of what's in the human heart. So this passage then means it's not about being quick to hear or slow to speak or slow to anger. The passage is not about all filthiness and rampant wickedness or even us being doers of the word and not hearers only or our ability to bridle our tongue. Even though the passage speaks about these things, that's our nature, which is to focus on externalities. That's how we interpret the scripture here. But that's not what James is saying. How would God read this passage? What's really happening in this passage if it's not about these things? Um, Later on, James points out that no man is able to control his tongue. And then he says, if anyone controls his tongue, he's doing an impossible thing because nobody can do it because the tongue is like the fruit of a tree. And from the tongue, we get to visually see what's happening on the inside of a person. And so James says, the way you actually tame the tongue is not by trying to control the tongue, but it's really going after the heart. In other words, just as the fruit of a tree is the result of what a tree already is. If it's a fig tree, it gives birth, it uh, bears uh, figs. Such is the case with our tongues. Whatever is in our hearts, it overflows as words, as what we speak. And other people get to see it and hear it, experience it. But it's not what defines a person. What defines a person is the heart. By the time you hear something through somebody's words, that's already been in the heart for a long time. We have two hints of this in today's passage. Verse 26 says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his what? His heart, this person's religion is worthless. 
James is saying here, don't miss this, that there is such a thing as religion that's worthless. Ask a non-Christian, is there value to Christianity? And a lot of them will say no. And a lot of them will say, in fact, not only is it worthless, it's actually done damage. And they'll point to a thousand stories that's happened over the course of the last just a hundred years. And say, see how much bloodshed, how much oppression, how much power is all intertwined with organized religion. Religion has been used not to set people free, not to heal and help, but actually to hurt and oppress and control and dominate people. It's all over the news. I just read uh, this week a heartbreaking story about these Muslims who had converted to become followers of Christ, and then they were caught by ISIS, and every single one of them tortured and then executed. Brought tears to my eyes. Normally those stories are just it's happening so often that it doesn't um, bother me, but there's an eyewitness account in there. And it broke my heart to read it. And that's what the world thinks about religion. That if you take religion too far, it's fine if you just are an occasional churchgoer and you just want to have some scruples, you know, uh, in your kids or whatever. You know, you're just being a good member of society by going to church a few times a year. That's tolerable. That's even respectable. But to go to church every Sunday, to, to thumb through the Bible on a regular basis, to pray to an invisible God who's not there, and to pray for things and pretend God, quote-unquote, answered your prayers, that's just delusional. That's worthless, people would say. But what is James saying here? There is, if there is religion that is worthless, there is religion that is actually worth its weight in gold. There's a kind of religion that's really helpful, that's really healing. And that word, uh, that, that religion if it's able to penetrate to the human heart, it's really, really valuable. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but the counter to bridle his tongue is deceiving his heart. So for religion to be worth anything, for it to be valuable, it has to somehow penetrate the heart. The tongue is the outer expression of the inward reality of what's happening in the heart. The heart defines the tongue. The tongue does not define the heart. Religion, then, has one job and one job only. If you boil Christianity down to one function, it is to get at the human heart in a way that no other religion can. That's the value of Christianity. So if you're sitting here, and this is just part of your habit, but it's not really penetrating your heart, then this religion, this Christianity, this coming to church, this whole thing you call uh, Christi Christianity, or you being a Christian, it's not worth much if it's not getting to your heart. This is the one job of religion. There's another hint, verse 25. 
But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. There is such a thing as law that is perfect, which lends itself to freedom. Now, that's a kind of a, a showstopper of a statement for me because I feel like the law is actually uh, constricting. It's there to tell me what I can't do. How is law able to give me freedom? And James is saying here, actually, there are two kinds of law. There is law that's aimed at controlling your outer behavior. It's outside in, not inside out. But law, if it is perfect, it's aimed not at your behavior, but at your heart. And if it's aimed at the heart, it could actually give you freedom. You know what freedom is? Liberty, as uh, James says here, freedom is when the inner belief of the heart is in alignment with our outer action. So if the law says, honor your mother and father, but you want to honor your mother and father. You know, I was thinking about this today because my dad's preaching his last sermon today. He's officially retiring as of today. And I'm so proud of him. He made it. He's 69 years old, and he did really, really well. He's been the executive pastor and interim senior pastor uh, at a mega church in New York City. Uh, and he's been playing this role uh, since the last senior pastor left uh, about 12 years ago. And it's been really, really a hard journey. I'm really proud of him, and I want to honor him. And so my sisters and I, we've been uh, putting our heads together to see what we ought to do next year to celebrate his faithfulness in ministry, his faithfulness as a dad and as a husband uh, and as a uh, follower of Christ. We really want to celebrate him. I want to do that. That law, honor your mother and father, I feel freedom in that law. I don't feel constriction or restriction. I don't feel condemnation. The problem is that most of us, we don't experience freedom because even if we do the thing we want to do, we don't want to want to do that thing. This is exactly out of Romans. That's what Paul says is the problem is I keep doing the things I want to do, but I don't want to want to do those things. Who can save me from this body of death? And he feels like he's trapped. He feels like a slave because if you keep doing the thing that you don't want to want to do, you are, by definition, a slave. But what happens if your heart is changed in such a way that you want to do something and you want to want to do it? That is who you want to be. That is who you aim to be. That is who you intend to be. And that's the life you lead. There is consistency in your heart and in your outer actions. That is the definition of somebody who is free. And that's why religion, Christianity, unless it gets to us at our hearts, it's worthless. Because who cares if Christianity brings a set of laws and it constrains us and it modifies our behavior. It turns us into civil human beings. But in our hearts, we don't want to be civil. We don't want to share. We don't want to say thank you. Is Christianity just good for manners? Is that why Jesus died, so we could have good manners? 
So we can say thank you to the lunch lady? No, it's so that our hearts can be changed so that it's in alignment with how we were created to live. That's the whole point of Christianity. And it's so sad, I think, because there is no non-Christian out there. If you ask, put a microphone on them and you say, why did Jesus establish his church? Nobody says so the human heart can be changed. They can be set free. But that's the whole point of the Christian faith. I'm going to tell you something that may or may not go over well with you. Here's a statement I want to make. God doesn't care how you live your life if your heart is rotten. If your heart isn't being changed and transformed, if you're not receiving what James says is the word implanted with humility or meekness, if that's not happening to you, don't bother with Christianity. It's not worth it. It's not making you free. It's not making you good. It's not saving you. Freedom is doing what you want to do and what you want to do is what you want to want. There is integrity to your being. Now, I realize the importance of heart change because outside in, this behavior modification approach to religion is just an absolute failure. One example I thought of is my little micro world that I live in is my yoga class, my yoga world. Now, if you haven't done yoga, you don't understand this, but if you've done yoga, you will totally get this. Here's what yoga is. Yoga is you and your mat, and you show up in this hot, heated room, and then you get to sort of have your little space. Yoga is where you get to just be you. And it's kind of a weird thing because people start behaving in awfully selfish ways. Now, if you're a yoga teacher, you go to yoga class, Elizabeth is laughing because she teaches yoga. Um, people, like the yoga classroom that I practice in is about one-third the size of this stage. So it's a small room. You could barely comfortably fit a dozen people in there. But often, because this teacher is popular, there are sometimes like 20 students in there. And these students are all selfish. They come in with their mats. They get there early. They lay down. They close their eyes. And they pretend nobody else exists. And people are standing in the back hoping to find room. But they won't move. They won't even acknowledge the fact that other people exist. And so last week, I was in one of these classes with Susie. And she hadn't been to yoga in a couple of months. And so uh, she's there. And she sees that the classroom is getting crowded, and she's wondering what to do, right? And I had decided months ago I wasn't going to live with this anymore. And so I just got up from my mat. I started doing what I've been doing for about two months, which is I just go up to people and say, excuse me. Hey, so good to see you. If you moved over six inches, that'd be great. Hey, how are you doing? If you move back seven inches, then we can stagger. And I just start arranging, like pastoring, shepherding this room. And it just kept snowballing from there. The staff at Yoga Bliss know this and thank me for this. 
Because nobody wants to play bad cop, right? When people come in, I just stare at them, I acknowledge them, and then I point to where I think they should lay down their mat. I walk over with them, I tap people, I just do this. But here's the thing, that's just behavior modification, right? I'm just controlling people's behavior. And that's good. It's, it's Band-Aid on a festering wound. Though, because you know what's happening in their hearts? Do they like me? No, they don't like me. What's happening in my heart? Do I like them? No. I am judging them to the moon and back. I have theory upon theory about why they are the way they are. It's a pretty comprehensive theory. It includes how they do their hair, what kind of mat they have, how they like to position it, what kind of supportive apparatus like blocks or straps they're bringing, what size their water bottle is. I mean, it encompasses everything I'm able to observe about them. And the theory is absolutely perfect. And it's all happening in my heart filled with hatred and judgment. <laughs> and I think, who can save us from this body of death? <laughs> like this behavior modification, shepherd role I've taken on at Yoga Bliss Studios doesn't matter. It's not helpful. That kind of religion is ultimately worthless. But I realize that yoga room, that's all Christianity is to most people. It's just a way to keep other sinners contained. Why my heart, my own heart is just raging. I just would like to shut down and call it good if that's why I'm a pastor. What's the point? That kind of religion, James says, is worthless. Um, James has a, an anecdote to this, and it's found in these three verses. Verse 21 says, Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Verse 22, again, the word. Verse 23, the word. What is this word? The word is a seed. And somehow, through the work of God's Holy Spirit, who is able to access you because Jesus has cleansed you, and now the Spirit is able to get inside of you, has to plant this word on the inside, bury it deep at, in the center of your hearts. And from there, real life change happens. At first, it's a kind of conversion. And then it's a kind of process. Kind of uh, process that uh, theologians call sanctification. The key thing, the key piece that is the essence of Christianity, you miss this and you don't really understand this unless you hear the gospel preached uh, to you. It's that this word is the word of grace. That you don't have to be good. That you cannot be good. And it's an invitation to stop playing the game of having to be good. And it says, you are loved just as you are. 
And that love is what actually changes you. It's not the, it's not the um, promise of that love if you behave. It's that that love causes you to behave. And that's the inside-out approach. If I had to give a retitle of the book of James, the title would be Inside Out. That's the whole point of every verse in the book of James. James says, religion that is outside in is worthless. It starts on the inside with the word implanted in your heart. And from there, all that matters flows out. The alternative to a grace word being planted in you is a kind of works orientation. That's the only other alternative. That is the only pattern that the world has access to. You have to be savvy. You have to survive. You have to be self-centered. You have to perform. You have to be consistent. You have to be competent. You have to be better. You can't just be good. You have to step on other people. You have to put other people down. It is a competition between you and other people because righteousness and morality is relative. That's the only other way to live. And as you clearly heard in my yoga example, if I'm just focused on controlling outer behavior so that they can be good on the outside without an ability to penetrate the heart, then actually it's counterproductive because it makes their hearts even worse. And furthermore, it makes my heart even worse. I can do the right things. I can even help other people do the right things. And yet our hearts are getting worse by the minute. There's more hate, more judgment, more condemnation than ever before. Who will save us, all of us, from this body of death? The word of grace has to be planted deep in your heart so that it can begin to grow and build a framework of a counter pattern of being in this world as one who is already loved, as one who has been died for, as one who has been filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the good news as we know it. I put this up, um, I mentioned this I think last week and a couple of weeks before. Arrogance is believing that you are good. And lots of us are arrogant. Not wholesale good, wholesale arrogant, but we believe that there are areas where we are good. If you ask people, they say, I'm basically a good person. Basically, the word basically means I'm not perfect, but there are areas where I'm good. Like I did the dishes last night. I do it every night because I'm basically a good person. I'm not in jail. I'm basically a good person. I haven't been caught by the IRS. I'm basically a good person. I judge people by their actions. I judge myself by my intent. I'm basically a good person. (laughs) Right? That's arrogance. Pride, on the other hand, is believing that you have to be good. You have this sense of fear sense of judgment that's pending. And so unless you maintain your goodness, even if you're faking it, even if you're fooling people, you still need to do that because otherwise judgment falls on you. That's pride. And a lot of us live with this sense that we have to be good. 
And we know we're not, but we don't know what the alternative is, so we're going to keep pretending, keep putting that front up. And then grace comes, and grace says, God alone is good. No one is good except God alone. That's the message of grace. That's the word that has to be implanted. A friend of mine named Howard, he's a pastor in the East Coast. Uh, He's in his 60s. He's lived a long life. And uh, he shared this recently. He says, as a Christian and as a pastor, here's what I know from personal experience and the word of God. Unresolved sin doesn't expire. It remains buried alive, even for 10, 20, or 40 years. Ultimately, sin can never be hidden. It can only be resolved. And such resolution only comes by the earnest application of grace and truth, which we receive through God's Son, Jesus Christ. If I rationalize that my 10-year-old sins don't matter, but your 20-year-old sins still do, I'm not walking in the light, but remain in the dark. Somehow, Christianity maintains that the only power that's able to penetrate your heart is grace. Everything else we fend off. We're not going to come clean if grace isn't on the other side. If somehow just the law is on the other side, We're not going to really come clean. We're not going to be honest with ourselves and with others about what's really happening to us in our hearts. Your sin has to be resolved. And the question I have for you is, do you know of a way, do you know of a power that can cause you to have resolution of your sins apart from the word of God that is the grace of Christ? What is able to reach you there? And the the Christian message is only the love of God found in Christ Jesus can reach your heart. Nothing else can. Nothing else resolves sin in that way. So here's a conclusion that I've come to. Work, that's your outer life. Work minus the word, is a live burial. It's a mere cover-up. And the cover-up can last 10, 20, 30, 40, 60 years of your life. If it's buried but not resolved, it doesn't go away. Somehow, that buried sin is alive and it's informing your heart and it will leak out in your outer life. In some way, shape, or form, it's going to catch up to you. It's going to manifest. You are a ticking time bomb if your heart issues are not addressed. You need the word of God to be implanted in you. And you need to, with humility, receive it so that it sinks deep into your heart. Because work minus word is just a live burial. On the other hand, sin, which is what we have, plus the word, 
equals resolution of sin from within. This is so important, church, for us to talk about as a church because the church has not been a safe place. It's rather been a shallow place. We as a church have been focused on externalities. And when there is real life happening in the midst of church, real pain, real conflict, real issues, we tend to shy away. We become avoidant. We go into denial mode. We go into cover-up mode. We go into mitigate mode, manage mode. And we never give grace a shot. We never really come to understand that there is a kind of strength and robustness to the Christian faith in its ability to handle the real matters of life and the human heart in a way that nothing else can. We haven't tested the gospel. We haven't tested the strength of the Christian community that's filled with the Holy Spirit. And so the reputation of the church is they're a bunch of hypocrites. They don't resolve sin in their life. They just like to talk about it. They just like to preach it. They just like to condemn other people. That's what the church is known for. I'm, I sit in class every week with mostly non-Christians. And they always, every week, ask me some question about the church or about my faith. I'm not kidding. I'm going to tell you a, a little small win of a story. I usually like to be more self-deprecating up here. But this is a win. I'm going to take it. Three people, I gave a presentation in class last week. I got a little bit into preaching mode. Three people, three non-Christians said in the class to me after class, Peter, if I were a Christian, I would love for you to be my pastor. <laughs> it was a little bit, it was kind of an awkward moment. All of you were like, ah. Uh. They should just date you for a while. <laughs> it's not all it's cracked up to be. You know why? Unless sin is resolved at a heart level, it doesn't work. I know I'm going long, but I really want to get this right. If you don't get to the heart level, what happens, okay, this is what happens to me in and I've been listening to people confess their sins to me for 21 years now professionally, okay? What happens when you're in the midst of sinning is there's a part of you that feels like what you're doing is wrong. But there's also a part of you that feels like the victim, that feels like nobody understands the need I have. There are reasons why I keep resorting to my favorite sins, and people don't understand. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to keep this, this sin, a, sin a secret. And I'm going to keep milking it for what it's worth. Because the world doesn't know and nobody understands. And you start self-justifying what you're doing. There's all this rationalization that's happening. Reasons why you're continuing to head down this path. And all the while you're, you're getting more impaired and you're getting more self-deceived. And you spiral deep into, you just sort of drill into this sin. And you literally become implanted into this lifestyle. And it becomes part of who you are. 
And you can't set yourself free from the sin. And it has nothing to do with the outside appearance of it or what it is on the outside. But on the inside, in your heart, you believe that you are a victim, that you deserve to be nourished in some way. And you're just meeting your own needs that people don't understand anyways. I mean, that's what's happening. Nobody's sinning and going, ah, this is awful, but I'm going to do it. It's, this is awful, but this is also something I need. It's a, there's a dual thing happening. And what can get to you at that level, your mind and your heart, so that you actually have a change of mind about that thing that's destroying you? And I'm telling you, it's the word of grace. It's not somebody who's threatening condemnation or judgment or isolation or something. It's all techniques aimed at the outside. But we are dependent on the spirit of God, on the word of grace to penetrate our hearts. That's its one job. The one job of Christianity is to change our hearts. And if it can't do that, walk away. It's not worth your time. And it's counterproductive. And then as a pastor, I would say, how can we be a church where that's normal? Where we are participating with God at that level rather than just changing behavior on the outside. Uh, application. Let's start with verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. There's a kind of anger of man, energy, that we take on if we don't believe in grace. If grace hasn't penetrated your heart, it's just dependent on you. Your life's weight is on you. And so what happens is you become self-righteous, you become self-conscious, and you click into survival mode. You take on a kind of works orientation. You have to because that's your only alternative and the way that we experience you as sort of an angry person. And you don't listen because it's about you. And you're quick to be angry and you're quick to speak and you're slow to hear. So that's the application uh, for number one. I think I'm going to skip this quote for the most part. But it's a, a wonderful long quote <laughs> which you can read in full in the sermon notes section. Um, but let me read the last sentence of this quote. It's out of a book called The Laughter of God When Being Good Isn't Good Enough. And the author closes this section by saying this. The counter to the anger of man is humor. And he says that humor expresses itself primarily in this one way when you are a Christian. Surely humor is part of what is meant by the meaning of pure love casting out fear. When we are out of the realm of fear, we are into the realm, of, realm where self-ridicule is easy. One of the ways you begin to know that your heart is being changed and the word of grace has been implanted in you and is received humbly by you is you love making fun of yourself. You are naturally good at laughing along with others at yourself. Because it's so ridiculous. You are ridiculous. You walk funny, you talk funny, you smell funny. You're ridiculous. And it's funny. And you're the first person to admit how ridiculous you are. That's what grace allows you to do. Okay, application point number two, verse 27. 
Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Grace for you somehow begets grace for others through you. That if you have been touched by grace and you understand that the engine of life really is grace, then you begin to believe in grace and want to be gracious to others because you yourself have experienced grace as the power of God onto your salvation. You begin to convey that grace to others as the power of God for their salvation. So grace begets grace. You begin to understand that you are a conduit, catalyst, and steward of God's grace. And you begin to overflow with God's grace from the heart to the needs of others in order to convey God's love, grace, and truth regarding God's grace. Grace is everything. Um, as we close here, I want to invite Monica Finnefrock to come on up. Monica is uh, our missionary in residence, and she is... Uh, uh, going to Haiti, and she had planned this trip with others uh, for a medical mission, and then the storm happened, and now it's a lot of the previous work plus relief work that she's going to be doing, and uh, I don't know how she feels, but if I were her, I'd be really, really scared to go to Haiti at this time, uh, but I really wanted to uh, highlight and send her off together with you right now because I, I believe, knowing her, that her going to Haiti is just normal and natural outpouring of her believing in God's grace. And she has a heart for those who need help. And she's doing that not to be good on the outside, but it's an overflow of God's goodness from the inside. And so I want to invite you to stand. I want to ask you to extend your hands out to Monica. And let's pray for Monica in Haiti and close out the sermon. I want to read a verse for us. Uh, as we start praying. John chapter 7 says, He who believes in me from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. God, we pray for Monica, our dear sister Monica today, and we remember that she is practicing pure and undefiled religion as she goes to Haiti. And she's not going there for her own uh, self-righteousness reason. She's not going there to earn another notch on her belt, but she's going because you have loved her and you are the savior of her souls and you have forgiven her of all of, your, all of her sins. Your blood has been poured out for her. And so she is going to pour herself out uh, for the people of Haiti who have been devastated again. Barely beginning to recover and they are hit again. So we lift up this country. We pray for protection over Monica. We pray for your help as we um, send her off today. Bring her back safely to us. And we pray that the help that Monica brings with her is a mere symbol of your love and care and commitment to the country of Haiti. You will love on that country and you will redeem and restore that country. We lift them up. God, I also pray for all of our hearts. I pray that we might be saved that we might come to know the gospel of grace. And we pray that this word will be implanted deep in our hearts, that we might experience change from within, and that, that our outer life would be an expression of the freedom we live in as followers of Christ. 
We lift up our church and our ministry and all of our individual hearts and our lives to you in Jesus' name. Amen.